Today we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. So I'm going to read those verses, and then we'll talk about them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 8. But we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, you're the one who has given us this portion of Scripture. You're the one who can speak to us through it by the work of your Holy Spirit. Bring to life these words in a way that would help us, that would instruct us and lead us in your way. I do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul begins here in verse 8 by saying, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If you're using a New American Standard, which is the Bible that I use, then you can see that they capitalize the word law. Not all Bible translations do this. The New American Standard does this because, based on the context, They believe that the word law refers to the Mosaic law as given in the Old Testament. And I agree with them, and so it is this perspective that influences the direction of today's teaching. If you have been around Christians from different denominational backgrounds and theological persuasions, then you know there are various views regarding the law, how the Old Testament is to be used in relation to salvation, grace, and sanctification, and how the label of legalism is to be used. Sadly, some of these views are based on misunderstandings or even distortions of God's word. For example, at some point in church history, the law, as given in the Old Testament, was tied to legalism, which in turn was tied to the false belief that you could do enough good deeds to earn your salvation. And Christians often label this this false belief works-based salvation. The problem with this is the misapplication of the two labels, the first one being legalism and the second one being works-based salvation. Because this misapplication has resulted in the Old Testament law being seen as something bad or something that no longer applies to Christianity. Now, without question, a works-based view of salvation is in direct conflict with what the Word of God teaches about salvation by grace through faith. And we know this is true because 
God's word says so. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, Paul makes it very clear when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Whose grace? God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not something you've done. It's not something you've earned. It's not something that you've made happen for yourself. It was by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Again, not as a result of something you've been able to do. It's by grace through faith so that no one may boast. No one can make a claim to say, wow, I did this on my own, I got this for myself. No. The only way we get salvation is by grace through faith. This truth is further clarified in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, where Paul writes, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, and that word justified means that we have been made right with God, not by our doing, but by somebody else's, that somebody else's is Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, not as a result of something we've done, but solely because of his mercy and grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In spite of what God's word says, and I just gave you two portions here, in spite of what God's word says, false teachers continue to misrepresent the biblical requirements for eternal salvation by teaching that the saving work of Jesus Christ is either insufficient, it's not complete, it's not enough, or it's irrelevant. It doesn't apply. Those who treat the saving work of Jesus Christ as insufficient add to it, add to what he has done, by insisting that we must also keep some of the requirements of the Old Testament law such as, in Paul's day, circumcision, or, even in our own day, keeping the Sabbath, worshiping on Saturday instead of Sunday, or keeping certain dietary rules, or other types of additions, man-made practices or traditions that could be added in to the saving work of Jesus Christ. In other words, they treat what Christ has done as not enough, not quite sufficient, not quite complete, so we have to add in these other things in order to be saved. Those who treat the saving work of Jesus Christ as irrelevant believe you can do enough good deeds on your own to offset your sinful deeds and in so doing be given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure most of us here have heard people say that When I get to the pearly gates, I'm counting on God to look at my life and weigh things out and see that I've done at least a few more good things than bad, and so let me into his heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
That's not what the truth is, but that is what is stated anyway by folks who think that Jesus Christ's saving work is irrelevant. Paul faced this kind of false and misleading teaching about the relationship between the law and salvation in a number of churches that he established. And Luke records this reality in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And I'm just going to read this one verse, but it sets up where we're going, and you'll see what I mean. Some men, Luke Luke writes, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty strong and clear statement. You cannot be saved unless you add in to what Christ has done, circumcision. And we know Paul countered this kind of false teaching because we can read about it in several of his letters. For example, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, he says, For he is not a Jew, and I urge you to put there the word Christian. So when I read the word Jew, think Christian. And when I get to the word baptism, I know this is uh, a bit uh, difficult for everybody to accept my choice here. But I'm going to use the word baptism in place of circumcision, or have you think that, baptism in place of circumcision, because it's something that we are aware of, and it's it can help you understand how this applies to us today. So Paul writes in Romans 2, For he is not a Jew, Christian, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision, or baptism, that which is outward in the flesh. Just because you have the name Christian, or just because you've been baptized, or you have the name Jew and you've been circumcised, doesn't mean you're justified before God. You see, the true Jew, the one who belongs to God, the true Christian, the one who belongs to God, verse 29, but he is a Jew, Christian, who is one inwardly. You're actually changing from the inside out. And circumcision, or baptism, is is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise, this person's praise, is not from men, but from God. You see, in the days of Christ, those who were highly religious, Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees, the, the folks that saw themselves as the true Jews, the the ones who were sure that they were right with God, well, they were living this way for the praise of men. But what Paul is saying here is, you know, if you're going to be a true Christian and your baptism is going to be a true baptism, then you need to live this life from the heart. By the, power of the steer, by the power of the Spirit. And you will not be looking for praise from men, but looking to please God and get His praise. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Paul writes this, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters, what really counts, is the keeping of the commandments of God. Imagine that. 
Though the New Testament says we are saved by grace through faith, it also presents requirements for salvation. For example, someone has to pay the penalty we owe for our sin if we are to be saved from having to pay it ourselves. You have only two options when it comes to the penalty for sin. You either pay it yourself or someone pays it for you. Well, to be saved from that penalty, it is required that somebody pay the penalty on your behalf. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I'm just trying to help you see that the reality is there are requirements that come along with salvation. And the very first requirement that must be met for your salvation and my salvation is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If there is no work of Christ, if there is no sacrifice and death on your behalf and my behalf, we have no hope of salvation. So that is, in reality, a requirement, and it's the first requirement. The second requirement that must be met is God's grace. Because as the scripture says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. What we are given in, in God's salvation is a gift of grace. It is an act of mercy. We've been brought before the judge. We've been shown to be guilty. We have been condemned. And the only hope that we have is that somebody would pay the penalty on our behalf. Not because we deserve it. Not because that person owes us paying it on our behalf. You see, we don't deserve salvation. And God doesn't owe us salvation. And that means, without question, our salvation is a gift of grace. And that's the second requirement for salvation. A third requirement is faith. Faith on our part. Faith that the saving work of Jesus Christ does indeed free us from the penalty of sin. If you do not believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you will not put your faith in him and live accordingly. So, that is the third requirement, faith on our part in the saving work of Jesus Christ, that it is effective, that it does what God's word says it will do. A fourth requirement for eternal salvation is repentance. I think we could all agree that God did not sacrifice his son and offer us salvation, leading to a reconciled life with him, so that, having been freed from the penalty of sin, we could continue living a life of selfishness, a prideful life, and a sinful life. <laughs> Imagine making that kind of sacrifice so sinners would not be condemned but free to go on sinning. It just, it, it makes no sense. Jesus himself said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32 And Paul affirmed the requirement of repentance when he defended his ministry for King Agrippa. We read this in Acts chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. And here's what Paul said. So, King Agrippa... I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was given this calling. I was given the message. But I kept declaring 
both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That final statement wraps it all up. We need to repent. We need to turn to God. We need to perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance is a requirement for eternal salvation. Why? Because God did not save us so that we could continue in sin, but so that we would put an end to sin and be conformed to the image of Christ and be holy as God is holy and live accordingly from then on. A fifth requirement for eternal salvation is sanctification. Sanctification is nothing more than dying to self, putting to death your fleshly desires, turning away from worldly desires and practices, and putting Christ-likeness in their place. Or we could say that, because of what we're talking about today, that sanctification is about the same as keeping the moral parts of the Old Testament law. The need of sanctification in relation to salvation is affirmed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and its second half. And here's what we read there. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and by faith in the truth. Notice the statement doesn't say for salvation through the saving work of Jesus Christ. It says, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and by faith in the truth. So the Holy Spirit is at work in this process of salvation bringing along sanctification, which is it goes hand in hand with salvation. Take one away, you haven't got the other. So the Holy Spirit is at work and also our faith in the truth. And the word faith there doesn't mean just agree with. It means live according to. What you trust in, you live according to that trust. What you believe, you live according to that belief. If we have faith in the truth, then we will live according to the truth. And it is the truth of God's word that is referred to here. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we read, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification of without which no one will see the Lord. It's a pretty clear statement. You can play with it, you can explain it away, but it's pretty clear and states that sanctification is one of the requirements for eternal salvation. The point is that, according to God's word, salvation has requirements. But they are not the kind of requirements the false teachers of Paul's day added in or the false teachers of our day add in. In today's Christianity, we face two problems related to this issue. The first is similar to what Paul faced because there are those in the church who add requirements to salvation that the Bible doesn't include. The second problem is quite different. And and I hope you can understand what I'm saying here. Because this is a different kind of problem. But it is related. 
to the very thing that Paul faced. There are a number of Christians who teach or talk as if some of the biblical requirements for salvation are forms of work-based salvation, and therefore they can be ignored. For example, repentance. There are those within the church who would argue that if you make repentance a requirement for salvation, you're turning salvation into something that is works-based. And so, they ignore that part of the process of salvation, repentance. And there are those who label any requirements for a personal effort related to sanctification as legalism. If you put any requirement on somebody to change, such as ponder the word of God, put to death the members of your body that are continuing in sin, put down that sin that so easily besets you, put off the old nature, put on the new nature, put on uh, humility, get rid of anger, put on kindness. No, you start adding those things in or you, you bring those things up and there are those within the body of Christ who say that's legalism. So how did the labels of works-based salvation and legalism come to include the moral parts of the law, come to include some of the New Testament requirements for salvation, and come to include the requirement that we must put forth a personal effort to be sanctified. I mean, here in in uh, Timothy, we're going to get to that very statement that says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Those are requirements that I have to be active in, and you have to be active in. And that's part of the process of sanctification. So how did that begin to be labeled legalism? I don't know. I don't really know how this has happened. But I can tell you that many in Christianity are placing the works-based salvation label on anything that even slightly appears to invalidate or diminish salvation as a free gift of God's grace given to anyone who professes faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, even if they don't proceed to make a sincere effort to live according to the word of God. I remember growing up, the neighbor fellow, neighbor, young neighbor fellow that uh, lived next door to us, came to Bible school at our church. And he went forward and uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ, was saved or born again, as we would say. And yet, he continued to live his life just as he'd always lived it. It made no difference in how he lived day to day. And so I asked, is this young man saved? Could that really be the case? And the answer was, well, of course. He went forward, he prayed the prayer. He's a child of God. How he was living was not taken into account at all. 
it was irrelevant in that setting to salvation. And to say that it is relevant how you live, for many, turns salvation into something that's works-based or legalistic. The same thing happens in relation to sanctification. Should, should we infer that we must make a planned and deliberate effort to put off sin and the deeds of the flesh and put on Christ-likeness, then we can be attacked for teaching or promoting, in people's minds, a form of legalism. I've certainly had this happen to me, so I, I know about this firsthand by personal experience. My purpose in all this is to bring some clarity to a wrong condemnation of the law and to the misuse of the word legalism and a misuse of the phrase works-based salvation. And I'm doing this because in verse 8, Paul clearly states that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So how do we use the law lawfully? By staying away from using it to either add to or take away from the truths of God's word regarding salvation, sanctification, and any other aspect of the Christian life, such as Bible reading, or which Bible translation to read, or how you pray, or fasting, or evangelism, or church attendance, or what form of worship you should participate in, or even the clothes that you wear. To use the law lawfully is to stay within the boundaries of what God's Word actually teaches and says about salvation, sanctification, and any other aspect of the Christian life. As for keeping the law, it is clear that we have been set free from the ceremonial parts of the law, such as circumcision, or keeping special days and dietary rules. However, we have not been set free from keeping the moral parts of the law. For it is in keeping them that we are able to love God as we ought and love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a number of scriptures supporting this link between law, eternal life, and sanctification. But I'm only going to give you a few. For example, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, by the way, you can annul them simply by saying, ignore them. They don't apply to us. Whoever annuls them and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's the wrong thing to do. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, what was their righteousness about? How do we surpass their righteousness? Well, 
Their right righteousness was about the show and the praise of men. They wanted to put on a good show of righteousness because for them, that would then get them the praise of men. To surpass that kind of righteousness, we should be in it for God and the good of others. And if there's going to be praise, it needs to come from God. And so he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, which was an outward show of righteousness, but not an inward heart given to righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law, not having the law, not knowing about it, will also perish without the law. The law will not be the thing that judges them. God will judge them, yes, but he will judge them from a different perspective. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. By the way, the first folks have a conscience. They have a culture. They have a sense of right and wrong. So even though they don't have a written law, they have at least some knowledge of right and wrong. And as we read in the Holy Scriptures, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, to you that is sin. So those who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, who have been justified, who are saved. It's the doers of the law who will be justified, who will be saved. And further down in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, Paul writes, For indeed circumcision, and you can think of baptism here if you wish, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's of no value. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now remember, under Judaism, circumcision was a sign that you belonged to the nation of Israel, and to belong to the nation of Israel was to be a child of Abraham, and to be a child of Abraham was to be in right standing with God. So to them, circumcision was the proof that they were in right standing with God. And what Paul is saying is, even though you're circumcised, if you are a transgressor of the law, it's as if you're not circumcised. But if someone who is not circumcised keeps the requirements of the law, it's as if they are circumcised. In other words, who does God give the gift of eternal life to? Who's included in the family of God? Those who live according to the requirements of the law. Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Are those not in the Ten Commandments? And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, listen to the tenth verse here. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When we give the Old Testament law a bad name, when we say it doesn't apply to us, when we say that's legalism or that's uh, 
man-made salvation, we are misrepresenting the Word of God and the ways of God. Because love is the fulfillment of all of those commandments. Matthew seven twelve. In everything, therefore, Jesus says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the summation of the law and the prophets. This is simply what the law and the prophets are, are calling you to do. Treat people the way you want to be treated. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That is, we've kept the law. He who does not love abides in death. He's yet unsaved. These scriptures speak to the right use of the law in relation to salvation and sanctification. So with these scriptures in mind, let's be careful in how we use the word legalism and the phrase works-based salvation so that we do not misrepresent the word of God or the ways of God or the requirements of God for salvation, for being reconciled to God, for walking with God, and for living the Christian life. Moving on to verse 9 in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Why do we have laws? The right answer is to direct and constrain and restrict those who are willing to harm others in how they live. You understand that? Why do parents say, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do? They do that in order to direct your behavior and constrain your bad behavior and restrict what you're able to do. Why? Because you do things that are harmful to others, even harmful to yourself. You see, laws are not for those who are doing what is right and good. Why? Because those who are doing what is right and good don't need laws to direct or constrain or restrict them. They're already living within the boundaries of what is right and good. The ones who need law are the self-willed, the self-ruled, the selfish, the prideful, the arrogant, the rebellious, and willful sinners who willingly harm others to do as they please and get what they want. To confirm this, Paul presents a rather lengthy, though not exhaustive, rather lengthy list of those who need laws to restrict their bad, sinful, and destructive behavior and direct them toward good behavior. And so as we look through this list, try to recall the commandments of God that address those ungodly behaviors. And I won't read the commandments, I'll just give you references. So the first two that Paul lists are the lawless and rebellious. That is, those who won't submit lawless, and those who fight against what is lawful, rebellious. Look at Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 33. The next group is the ungodly and sinners, those who intentionally live contrary to God's will and what is in the best interest of others. 
Look at Psalm 1.5. The unholy and profane, Paul lists. Check out Leviticus 19, verse 2, and chapter 22, verses 32 to 33. And then Paul lists those who kill their fathers or mothers. Read Deuteronomy 5.16. And then he says those who murder. Deuteronomy 5.17. And then the immoral, that is the sexually immoral men and homosexuals. Look at Leviticus 18.22-23 and chapter 20, verse 14. Next are the kidnappers. Check out Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7. Then Paul lists the liars and perjurers. And what's the difference between a liar and perjurer? They're both lying, but the perjurer does this in the court of law where he has given sworn testimony, and he is the sworn testimony means he's given his word that he's telling the truth, and yet he is lying in order to uh, sway the court in his favor or in the direction that he wants the court to be swayed. That's perjure. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And then Paul says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Well, where do we find sound teaching? In the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Want to really drive this point home today, and we'll finish with this. The Word of God is our only anchored and therefore unmovable, unchangeable, and always dependable truth. Now, the wisdom of the world may agree with God's Word here and there, but the world's wisdom does not look to or depend on God's Word as its anchored unmovable, unchangeable, and always dependable source of truth. You see, the world's wisdom changes with the times. Some points in history, the world's wisdom is proclaiming this, and sometimes it's it's proclaiming that. And they may even be in contradiction to each other. We see this in our own day. And the world's wisdom changes from culture to culture. Some groups proclaim this as wisdom and some groups proclaim that as wisdom and again they can be in competition with each other or contradict each other. So again it's not as if the world never gets truth right. The problem is that their truth is not anchored to an immovable unchangeable object such as the word of God. The Word of God is our only anchored, and therefore unmovable, unchangeable, and always dependable truth. So let me ask a couple questions. Do you treat the Old Testament as the Word of God just as much as the New Testament? Have you slowly and carefully read through the laws given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy for the purpose of better understanding God's ways and will for your life? Is it your aim to keep your thinking, desires, words, and deeds anchored to the Word of God? Do you measure, do you evaluate the way you live by the Word of God? As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 
all scripture is inspired by God. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is my prayer and my desire that we would use the word of God this way.